All right. This is the Conversation Cannabis and Christianity podcast. My name is Miguel Torres. Our special guest is Tim Barnhart. Tim is the owner, president, and CEO of Legacy 420, an indigenous medical cannabis company located on Tayendinaga. Tayenda, Did I? I'm sorry, Tim. I, I, which one? Say that correctly for me, man. Tayendinaga. 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 Tayendinaga Territory, Mohawk Territory, which is located about two and a half hours east of Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Tim has been involved in the medicinal cannabis industry for over 40 years and has been a staunch advocate of the promotion of the rights of all individuals to have access to medical cannabis and its byproducts. Tim possesses a wealth of knowledge on the cannabis industry and is, a, and is passionate about educating people on the medicinal benefits of cannabis, which is safer, which is a safer alternative to opioids in the treatment of chronic pain. So from the Tayana Denega Mohawk Territory in Ontario, Canada, Tim, how you doing? I'm doing fantastic, my friend. How about yourself? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I apologize because we went over that. And as soon as I got to it, I was like, oh, man, that, ah, so I apologize for not pronouncing that correctly, but I'm doing all right today, man. Thank you. We get that confusion a lot around that word, time to negative. Well, you know what? It's, it's, uh, I used to see those words a lot more. I, cause I grew up in Michigan and there's a lot of Native American influence of there, of course, you know? So I would see those, I would see those words a lot. And then even when, uh, we just left Virginia and came back to Florida, and even in Virginia, it was the Powhatan, Powhatan tribe in Virginia that, uh, that, that I would see. But not for some reason, it's like the further south I go, the, the less influence I see. So I apologize, Tim. I am sorry, but I am excited about this one because you have a unique life experience that I think a lot of people will find informative and insightful and also inspirational. So you are the owner, president and CEO of Legacy 420, which is an indigenous medical cannabis company in Ontario, Canada, on a Mohawk territory. So that's what I want to, that's the first thing I want to ask you, Tim, is what is Legacy 420 all about, my friend? Hey, so Legacy is all about cannabis first, um, and sovereignty second. So um, Legacy 420 came about eight years ago, okay? So First Nations people, um, got word that um, a young, brash member of parliament named Justin Trudeau was talking about the legalization of the cannabis plant. And um, so that piqued my interest. The year was 2014. And Trudeau hadn't yet formed government. We had a conservative government being run by a gentleman named Stephen Harper at the time. And so that piqued my interest. Um, so now a little bit of back history on gaming and tobacco. So both of those industries were taken from our people. We were never consulted. Um, if you check the history books for both of those, gaming, and tobacco have been part of our culture for thousands of years. Yeah. Um, so when the word cannabis came up, 
that was another um, plant that was part of our um, pharmacopoeia. So I figured that they were going to take an end run around canvas like they had done with the other two tobacco. And so I immediately um, got together with a couple other friends and decided to talk about growing cannabis in a, in a bigger fashion and opening up a, a sovereign dispensary on a First Nation to basically um, tell the government that here we are, we're over here, don't forget us, you have to consult. So the year was 2015 when I opened my dispensary, um, the cannabis, that young rash MP was elected and 2015 and cannabis was legalized in 2018. So um, my business was operating for three years and it, at the same time I created the National Indigenous Medical Cannabis Association and what that was was an advocacy group for Native people to lobby the federal government to be included in the Cannabis Act, which we never were. So the Cannabis Act came and went in 2018 okay. and no um, area for First Nations people to get involved in the program. So we advocated across the country. We, we went to probably 30 to 40 meetings across the country uh, regularly, flew back and forth from 2017 to 2019 to say to the government, here we are. You know, we, this is a plant that we know very well. We are people of the earth. Um, no one knows this plant better than we. Um, please give us, uh, please include us in your, in your upcoming laws. Of course, we never were. So, no kidding, really? So yeah. The government of Canada, like the federal government of Canada, left the sovereign Native, Amer Native American nations out of the Cannabis Act these people out of it. Yes, we were never consulted. We were consulted after the act was passed. Okay. After the act was passed, it was too late for consultation. Yeah. So what that did was allow a lot of sovereign nations that are like the Mohawks here to create their own regulations and their own standards. And so you have probably 200 First Nations within Canada that have took the proactive move to regulate and standardize their reserves so that they're not arrested. So that is the problem. So us being left out of the act, if we are growing flour on a reserve, that means the RCMP can, and the OPP and any law enforcement can come in and arrest us. That's why our councils and our chief had to create standards and regulations to protect its citizens. So literally you had the federal government taking end run right around uh, indigenous cannabis. And so today, um, 2021, we still have no consultation. Uh, there is consultation happening with federal leader, uh, with, uh, with native leaders now, but the act has already been passed, right? So uh, you have a lot of First Nations and First Nation chiefs who are upset that we were left out of this act in the first place. And so um, it, it, it's difficult to say where this even might go today, whether what type of market we will have, whether we'll be forced under a federal regime and a provincial regime, or whether we can do this still sovereignty in the future. So that's what they're talking about right now. Um, 
They realize they've made a huge error by not including us in this plan. And now they're trying to get us included after the plan's been passed. But we're saying that's not good enough is what we're saying. So we've already written the standards. We've already written the, the procedures and we've already been operating for eight years, right? With yeah. no calls, with no one getting set. Um, and so why do we have to go under a federal legislation to run a company that runs like every other company right now? So that's kind of where we're at politically today um, in dispensing. And that's why I opened the dispensary in 2015. Were you, was there anybody else was there any were there any Native Americans in Canada doing what you were doing it back then or did you, did you have other people that you could work with like did you have people you could like talk to and try to I was the only guy so um it was two years before the next dispensary opened up on a reserve oh wow yeah so I literally was two years operating without a license I literally had police visiting my shop probably once a month trying to shut me down oh you got shut down no I don't Here's the reasons why, you know. And then finally, um, it, it come to a precipice. Uh, the, um, the chief of police and a couple other priests came, and, and they were trying to force me to close. And I said, look, here is all my reason and the rationale of why I think what I'm doing is legal. Can you take that to Ottawa, to the, to the highest court in the land, and you ask them, and if I'm doing something wrong, then I will close my shop, but I don't think I am. So the police took that information that I gave them, yeah. took it to the highest crown in Ottawa, where, where the apartment buildings are, and they basically told me, they called me in two months later and told me I was allowed to operate. All right. So I wasn't breaking any laws. And so today you have 60, 60 different dispensaries, you have 60 growers, you've got a very robust, um, ripe, program here and cannabis program that is probably in excess of 50 million a year, I would say. Wow. In terms of revenue that it's, you know, and so I don't see, you know, where where that's wrong, right? So Canada had the opportunity to get all that done, but they refused to deal with us. And so now they're kind of coming, they're seeing how successful we've been at cannabis. And so now they're trying to get us back into this act. And, and, and I say today, uh, we don't need you. We needed you three years ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's an interesting thing, man. It, it is. I mean, I, I have, you're the first person I've talked to that, that is, that is started a, a dispensary on, on a sovereign land. Yes. In North I'm, America. Yeah. Yeah, it's the, the concept of it is really interesting yeah. and in the and really it, it takes I, I think it takes a lot of courage to doing what you're doing because. Um, and you know what? And the other part of this was um, Vancouver and Toronto, um, when I opened, started discussing um, with a couple of friends of mine about the idea of opening up a dispensary, we already had 250 illegal dispensaries operating in Toronto and another 200 in Vancouver. And so there was lots of room for, for us, right? So um, the transition from illegal uh, dispensary to legal dispensary is where, so most of them closed up all the illegal dispensaries outside of the First Nations. But on First Nations, 
we took the illegal dispensary and turned it into a legal dispensary. All right. Canada had the opportunity to do that. So we had people in place in Canada with lots of, um, with lots of experience. All right. And we closed all those shops and, and, and sent all those people and charged them and, and put them in jail and, and, and took their homes. And meanwhile, we needed those people. We really needed those people. Those people were running those dispensaries for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. They knew the game. They knew the medicine of cannabis. And we swapped that out for a legal system so we could raise money as a country for coffers from the federal government, leaving people in those businesses that know nothing about cannabis. All right? So we traded a system, uh, an educated system for for a non-educated system. So when, when, when First Nations started to legalize, all those old people, like myself, who have been in cannabis for 40 years, were allowed to stay and run the business. So we bring forward 40 years of experience. And Kathy, she's been growing for 40 years too, right? So <laughs> you have hundreds and hundreds of years experience. When you go to a, a licensed producer outside of a First Nation, you might have one or two guys in that LP or maybe a dozen people who know cannabis very well. And so most of your big players in cannabis off reserve come from the alcohol industry. Most of your people on reserve come from the cannabis industry. So it's completely different from what they've created. So we stay true to ourselves which is very unique. It is. It is, Tim. It is. So I'm sure you've had to have navigated, you've had to navigate some laws and policy. I mean, I can just, I can't even imagine the, the bureaucracy of what you're dealing with. Wow. In the cannabis industry. And then also within a sovereign nation, how long did it take you I know. So you had you gave that instance where you said, I think I'm uh, operating legally. And Ottawa said, we agree. Was there anything else that you had to do to demonstrate or to uh, yeah, to demonstrate that that you were a legit business? Absolutely. So. Um, so I knew I had to be responsible. Right. So I knew there would be a lot of people following what I would do. So wherever I built, it had passed the bar. It had, if, if I was arrested, I wanted this. I wanted to win my trial. I wanted to win. If my case went to the Supreme Court, I wanted to have everything lined up so I would win that case. Okay? And so I built it like Canada did. I absolutely did. Right. So we read the regulations as they were being developed, right as they were be being developed. And as they were being developed, we took the common sense out of them and say, okay, well, this is probably going to pass. This is probably going to pass. This is probably too big. And what we did is start, I did a checklist on what the standards would look like in the future. And that's how we built this. So we started filling out SOPs. And that's when Kathy was hired um, from, the, from a local college. So I reached out to Loyalist College, realizing where I had to be. And I, I couldn't get there alone. I needed help. So I, entered, uh, I called Loyalist College and, and invited them down to talk about training in this, in, in this facility because no one was taught to training. This is 2016, yeah, 2016. And so two years before the act was passed, I started talking training. And so 
Kathy and uh, uh, her friend Paul came down from the college and we sat and talked. And at the end of that meeting, as Kathy was leaving, she slipped me your resume. And uh, Kathy's background is in ISO. So she is ISO certified and she writes um, standards and procedures. And that so you, you said ISO, internal security operations? ISO 9000. Okay. So 9001. So they're all your standards of operating procedures. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. How to run an international. international. Yes. International standards. That's what, okay. That's what I was thinking. I was like, uh, <laughs> I was trying to get that ISO. All right. Cool. That's how we built out the system, right? So everything has a standard attached to it. So um, right from formulation. So we have, I don't even know how many formulations, probably four, four or 500 different formulations that, that all have standards of operating procedures. Actually, everything we do, as if you go to the washroom, there's a standard operating procedure for it. But that's how the whole world runs. And I knew we had to build the company like everybody else does. If we're going to win at a court challenge, I don't want to miss anything. So we have... Um, testing facilities here, just like the federal government does. We use the same machines that the federal government does. Testing is all done. Uh, we took their standards and that's how we do ours. So we buy our standards from our machines that are the same standards that Health Canada uses. So we're lockstep with, with Health Canada and they are kind of like um, in, the, in the South is CDC's. Yeah, that's that's in the in the States, it's the center for, well, uh, you have the FDA, Food and Drug Administration. Okay. FDA. So yeah, uh, Health Canada is, is like the FDA. And so um, we built it out like uh, a licensed producer, exactly like Health Canada would like to see it. And, and that's it. That's pretty much it. So we have um, a seed to sale program. We have uh, a robust uh, recall system. We have all the systems that the federal government and provincial governments have. And we, and we did them all before the federal government in the province did. So we were literally meeting with the health minister and we had the programs done and they were just working on it. She said, well, you're, you're, you're way ahead of us. <laughs> we already had it. You want to buy ours? <laughs> they, they probably should have. They probably should have. <laughs> they probably should have. <laughs> so what do you have? What's, what's your vision for Legacy 420? Where, where do you want to see it go from here? I mean, you've already done a lot. I mean, that's, so, I mean, I, I know we haven't even talked about all the work, but, right, but so, just knowing government bureaucracy and, and the things that come with it, you've you done a lot of work for sure. Bureaucracy is just that, right? So it's there for a reason. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know what? You just got to know how to get around it. And, and we're pretty good at getting around that. Um, but I see us as, as an international company. So doing international sales with uh, other sovereign nations, uh, New Zealand, Vietnam, Africa. We even got calls in Africa. Um, um, any sovereign territory, any, any nation really that, it, I mean, we are a cannabis company. We do a holistic cannabis product. There is no pesticides, herbicides, fungicides in our, any of our, our plant materials. So we, take serious the idea that cannabis is a medicine, right? And so yeah. um, juxtapose against a system that sells cannabis so people can party, uh, I think we're doing pretty good and I think we'll do even better in international sales, I do. 
And so I would like to creep around the world. I would and, and, uh, and be proud of it. That's cool. Yeah, that's cool, man. All right, Tim. Well, you know, I know, see, I know we're going to continue to talk about cannabis, but I really want to ask you this question now. And that is growing up on the Mohawk territory in Ontario, Canada, what kind of worldview, like, how did you view the world? Like, how do, did, did you view it the way your parents viewed it? Or I'm sure you were taught that way or were you taught that way? And, and actually, how, oh, yeah. All right. So actually I grew up in a, in a place called the Garden State. You grew uh, up in New Jersey? Yes. So <laughs> until age 10. Okay. And we came to the reserve in 1970. So um, growing up, in the States, um, I grew up in a place called Newark. Okay. So tough, tough neighborhood, um, yeah. up on the streets. So I was a tough kid. And so moving to an Indian reserve was a lot like living in the hood, right? So you had to be a really tough kid. And so I remember moving to the reserve, getting in fistfights daily because I was different. I had an accent, right? And my eyes blue because my mother was Irish. But I fought my way to stop, right? I, I got respect um, through the way, the only way I knew, and that was through violence. And um, so I made my way to the top of the pile on the reserve uh, in, in the school system. And um, my journey through the school system was really, really a bad education. So um, we were run by uh, church, churches were running the schools in the 1960s and the 1970s. And um, it was all about crime and punishment, right? So we were, as Indian kids, you were never expected to achieve a certain level. Um, you were always, they always had your living already figured out for you. So even your living in, when you were in grade four and five was already being pegged out for you, right? So they were already trying to tell you that, you know, aspiring to become an accountant or a lawyer or a doctor was futile uh, to forget it, that you're likely going to be a farmer or a laborer or, you know, so. Golly, man. That, that's stars was hard in a school that didn't allow it. So um, making my way through school was tough. Um, but growing up on the reserve was the best gift that I could ever had. you know it, it got me back to where I should have been back to nature and um, that's when I started learning about my roles and responsibilities as a person as a human and uh, I started taking that pretty seriously um, so native people we look at um, the world and lands and water and nature totally different than everybody else um, as I told you earlier Nature to us is a responsibility. Um, and, and that's how I lived my life, right? Um, since, since an early age, um, I was taught how to be respectful of your elders, how to be respectful of nature. Those are things I never, when I was out in society, um, you know, you, you had dump trucks, garbage trucks driving by you. I lived in North New Jersey. I, I lived through the race riots, right? In the 1960s. So, you know, so. Um, you know, black people, red people, yellow people getting their skulls, you know, smashed in. I saw, you know, the hippie movement. I got to see all the, 
all that pretty crazy stuff um, when you were a kid. But when I come to Canada, I, I came to a, a, such a remote spot that I really got to get connected again, right, to, to Mother Earth. And, and so I never left that fold. I, I don't care if I ever go into a city again. I don't care if I travel anywhere. You know, I don't, I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a worldly person, right? Now that I know what I know, there is no need to run around the world looking for happiness, right? It's here, right? It's, it's where we all are. And happiness is where you are, not where you want to be. And, and so when I learned that, um, it changed my life. It sure did. And so I never wanted to leave this place after that. I never wanted to go anywhere. I, I just wanted to build this up. And, and, and so that's what I started to do, right? And, I, and through cannabis, I'm telling you, if you would have seen Tynanaga before cannabis, you would have just shaken your head. I mean, just the explosive growth in the last eight years has made such a difference in our community. It, it's like night and day, literally like night and day. And we're talking about the, from the revenue, are we talking about revenue brought in from so the dispensary? What we were able to do um, when we started Legacy was raise the rate, the, the, the wages on, on, on the nation. So um, for the people, for the, for the, for the, so, for the sovereign citizens living in the nation, you guys were able to raise the wages for them. So basically I started stealing employees. I wanted the best and brightest. I wanted the best and brightest people to get to where I needed to go. I needed the best and the brightest. And I knew how to get that by poaching them, right? By offering them better yeah. money, right? And so that's exactly what I did. So I poached the best and the brightest and paid them really well. Paid them really, really well. And so I knew that this system could, I knew the ways the system could handle. And so basically what I did is... Um, turn this whole reserve upside down. So now everybody has to pay a decent wage. So you've, you've got probably an access of 18 to 20 gas stations who now have to pay their, their, their pumpers, you know, comparable wages to what we pay here. So you start here at 16 bucks an hour, you're on Indian reserve in the middle of nowhere. That's pretty good money. You started, yeah. we got guys making a hundred thousand. You've got guys in the back labs, right? You've got, uh, we've had doctors, uh, biochemists, uh, all sorts of professional people where there's 32 on staff. So you can imagine the level um, you go from 16 right up to, say, 150000 a year here. And so that's given a huge opportunity to the people on the reserve to quit their old job. You know what I mean? That was paying them, say, 15 bucks an hour or 12 bucks an hour. And we've even taken jobs away from the administration here. So we've taken high-level, high-caliber people at an administration forcing them to raise their rates. <laughs> That's good, man. I like to hear that. <laughs> it was powerful. And so now when you see the administration, uh, their new jobs, that their intake for new jobs, they're you know, 22, 23 bucks an hour, where they should be, right? Because it's impossible to live on 15 bucks an hour. Yeah. Right? Like, and today it's so... So that I've been able to do, and I'm tickled pink that I've been able to do that. So there was a lot of pressure exerted. So, so you said that uh, you went from New Jersey back to the reservation, the Mohawk Reservation, Ontario, Canada. Now, this is, is when you said you started plugging back in, was that through daily traditions that you were reacquainted with, or was there a, and I'm not sure if the religious or I think it's probably spiritual, spiritual aspect to it, or is it all together as one? 
That's a great question. So in 1926, all of our, all of that was stripped away. Okay, so you couldn't practice um, your culture anymore. Okay, so, so 1926, 1926, the Canadian federal government, uh, they, yeah. they did not allow sovereign nations to practice their religions anymore. That's right. Okay. That's right, right? And so um, you couldn't, and so the potluck dinner is, is a Six Nations thing. It's, it's, it's a Mohawk thing. We couldn't even do that. We didn't even have whole potluck dinners anymore. So you couldn't have any hoop dancing. You couldn't dance anymore. You, you couldn't do anything. No, nothing, right? So that was taken away. And, and the second thing that happened in 1926 is you had to have an elected band council. So they took away hereditary chiefs and put an elected council. So um, when I moved back in 1970, I had nothing here. There was literally nothing. This was a stripped piece of ground that they took and stripped all the wood off, right? They took all the raw materials when they put us here in 1784. There wasn't anything here. It was just a rock and a swamp. And we succeeded. We, we, we lived and, and lasted here. Um, but when I came in 1970, since all our history was oral, and since it was all stripped away in 1926, I didn't even know who I was. Nobody knew who they were here. There was a few people that, uh, Jeannie Hill, there was three or four elders that knew the old way, but it took another 10 years to 1980, 1979, 80, to send those same kids down to to the United States to become re-educated in traditions. That's how we got our language oh, wow. back. That's how we got our traditions back. We got them back ourselves by sending our youth to the United States, to the Seneca Nation to, to get educated. In that. well, that's pretty so cool. That's when, uh, you know, language started coming back in the 80s. Now, uh, in the 2020s, probably 50% of the Mohawk here are fluent in Mohawk. Oh, really? Yes. So wow. Very, very seriously now. They're, that's cool. Persian classes, and so tradition and culture runs supreme here now. That's one thing we've been able to bring back. And so for today's youth who left 20 years ago, when they come back, they're going to know who they are. That's they're cool, man. That's very cool, Tim. So when it comes to spirituality or... I guess a better way of putting it is, do you believe in a life after this life? I believe that our energy goes someplace. I'll just leave it at that, right? And where, I'm not sure. Um, but I've had a few friends of mine die uh, recently, and there was some strange anomalies, let's just say that. And um, I believe that your energy is lives on i do i do in what okay. i can't explain that but i do do you do you uh, do you still adhere to some of the oh mohawk um all, of them. all of them okay tell me about those because that's what i that's what i'm that's kind of that's what i'm really wanting to like that that when i yeah that's really really what i really want to know tim <laughs> like, like how do you when you when you look at the world and you're viewing it through the lens of Mohawk sovereign nation. Yeah, so responsibility for nature is the number one, right? Okay. No harm. Do no harm, number two, right? So 
these are basic tenets that that anybody can follow. Yes. Yeah. Native uh, Native culture has never been um, bastardized or complex. It's always been simple to achieve, right? And 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 and. There's a reason why it's simple because it's easy to achieve, right? And so it, it really is a balance between uh, nature and, and humans really is, is what it is. And the two are actually one, right? So we are nature and that's how we've always looked at it, right? We are nature. And so if you look at it that way, when you go into uh, the woods or you go somewhere straight, it does something, you know, it's, you're alive, right? You just, you can put me in a city and, and you can put me in, uh, take me to Europe, to any old, I mean, that doesn't, I don't get high from that, right? You take me into the woods and you can leave me there for eight or 10 hours and I don't even want to come out. I don't even want to come out. <laughs> That's the only way I can explain it, right? It's, <clears throat> It's a different life. Yeah, it's just different. So how long did it take you? I remember you said you got there, you had you had a lot of fighting. You, you stuck out because you, you were raised in the States. You didn't have an accent or you had the accent, even though you didn't have an accent, it was going to, it was an accent. I can relate to that. So did you go through some culture shock when you went back to the reservation? Culture shock. So I arrived in Canada. So President uh, Nixon, was in charge of the United States. And so I had an um, American flag. My brother Frank had an American flag upside down on the ass of his pants. I had an American flag on the back of my jean jacket upside down. And we got the beating of our lives the very first day at school. Really? You yeah. mean this is, and this is in New Jersey or back in Canada? Back in Canada. So, okay. so we arrived here not knowing anything about the school system, not knowing it's a religious school not knowing that corporal punishment's allowed, right? We don't know any of this. We just throw it in the school, thinking it's like the school in the States. And meanwhile, they have big black straps that they strap and paddles that you paddle you with, right? And so oh, when we walked into the school, the principal grabs us and he's going, take that coat off. And I'm going, take what coat off? And he's going, your coat and tear that flag off. He says, that's what, that's your, uh, your donishing the flag. And I said, I'm not. I'm simply wearing the flag upside down on my back for a reason, right? Because that's what everybody was doing in the States for the Vietnam War, right? Yeah. And so I wouldn't take the jacket off. So he, he took he took the jacket off, ripped the flag off, and strapped me and my brother Frank right in front of the whole classroom for wearing the American flag upside down. And meanwhile, we're not in America, we're in Canada. Yeah. Oh, that's that's was my introduction to the to the Indian Day School, the the religious Indian Day School. So they ran it very much like like a church, right? There was no talking back, no swearing, single file. It was just like a prison. That sounds like that sounds that sounds like military indoctrination from like yeah. boot camp. Really, it doesn't sound doesn't sound like a church. It sounds like a sounds like military indoctrination. Um, if you were uh, caught being bad, you would have to hold two Bibles in your hands. And if you drop those Bibles, you got the strap on your hands. And it was a big okay. oh, Hold on. I'm, I can see your body language, but nobody else will be able to see it. So you had to put your arms out like you're on a cross 
put a Bible on each palm of the palm of each hand. So you're holding it up one in your left, one in your right. And if you let one of your arms go down, you got strapped with that. Was was it leather or something? Leather strap? Yeah. Knowing full well, we would fail. See that kind of stuff. You know, those are the abuses. Those are some of the abuses done in the name of Christ that are horrible. You know, I mean, they're all horrible, but it's like, man, when I hear that, it's like, there's no love in that. No, and, and that was it, right? So the, the gentleman who was running the school at the time was, he wasn't right. I, that, that's how I looked at it then, and that's how I still look at it today. I don't think the clergy had any culpability in that. I think he was just a problem person, that's all. And I, I think he took, I think he liked the abuse he was dealt out at that at the schools that I do. And uh, and I think of him now today as just um, a sick person, right? And, yeah. and read that the church didn't know what was going on. And had they known what was going on, I'm sure they would have stopped it. And so that's how I deal with it today. I didn't think that way then. I'm thinking, oh my God, <laughs> you doing this to me for, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've been able to put it in proper perspective anyways. So what was it like growing up in schools like that on the reservation? So it was difficult. It sent um, some messaging, some wrong messaging, right? So you're thinking, well, is this with all the school? Like, so, uh, you know, obviously you're going to a day school and then your next journey is, is a secondary school or high school and then college and university after that. So you're thinking, well, do I really want to, do I really want to go and see what that's like. Yeah. So when we did go to the high school, it was all segregated. So they had um, the local high school, and they had all the Indian kids at one side and all the white kids at the other side. So we were completely segregated. And so I, you know, obviously I failed, right? I went back later on in life. Um, but at that time, I failed and, and quit school when I was just about 16, 15 and a half, I, I split school and, and hunt, started to hunt for a job. But uh, yeah, it didn't help. It didn't help, that's for sure. And that was that was a Catholic school as well? Um, so that wasn't. That was just a normal high school in the closest city to the reserve. Okay. The reserve. All right. So that's the way it's segregated in, in the public schools too. Yeah. yeah, that's what they did. They just segregated, had all the lockers at one end and the smoking area for the native kids at one end so we all had lunch together smoked together and lived together pretty much separate from everybody else and and as far as i know it's probably still like that today the school is still open they changed the name but (laughs) it's still open really yeah it's still open all right tim so have you changed the way you view the world from the time that you became reacquainted as a young, as a, it was like about a teenager around. I have. Um, so I, I'm a bit of a history buff. And so I, I read a lot of history, um, a lot of it old history. So a lot of the treaties and um, a lot of the stuff that should have been, would have been, could have been. And so, um, yeah, I look for openings. So, Today I use um, I use my money to 
to try and right wrongs, right? So in law, so um, racist law. So we're surrounded by, you know, law that was written for your people and my people. And um, it hasn't really worked out very well for our people, right? So in Canada, you know, you've got a very high incarceration rate for, for Native people and Black people, and um, that saddens me. And so, um, so we try to we try to go after these racist laws one law at a time, uh, working with other groups and other peoples. And um, that's the next thing, trying to get rid of a lot of these racist laws that's kept our people at the bottom for hundreds of years. And uh, it's going to take a long time and a lot of money and a big fight, but it's worth it. So I'm sure you've heard social justice and social equity a lot of the last year and a half. And uh, <clears throat> it almost kind of seems like when I hear it and it's, it almost seems like people are hearing it and it's fresh for the first time. Like it, it's like, this is just now, now, now the, uh, I guess you could say, I'll, I'll speak from the perspective of, of the United States. It's like people in the United States are starting to, you know, really stand up and, you know, it, it, this stuff's been around for a long time and you and your family tree generations back have been dealing with it for a long time. And that's the part that, that I really keyed in on when you said that is that the way you're viewing the world now is now you're motivated to go and make law and policy changes to improve the lives of people on reservations because they need to be improved. And that's social justice. And that is tied into when I, when I, and this is where I don't want to put any words in your mouth, but it, when I'm, when I'm, when I'm hearing you say it, it sounds like, it's all there's there's no this is the social justice arm of it this is the environmental arm of it this is the in action you may have to come out like that but when you when the 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 core of it is it's all comprehensive the way the way you live your life is is all that is makes up what you believe in who you are on this earth is that correct is that correct. or close to it at least That's correct yes absolutely correct and i think it's i think it's really critical that you've chosen social justice as one of your missions, because I think that's a big problem. I, I know that it's happening here in the States. There are some organizations that are trying to free nonviolent cannabis convictions. People have been arrested for years, decades over nonviolent stuff. And uh, that's something that I think when I, when I, when I see headlines and I look at churches and I hear and I read articles and it seems like there's some denominations that are that and when it comes to Christianity, that they are they'll get involved with social justice. But it's always along the lines of. Political division. There is it, it's almost, you know. The, it, it's no longer a. Uh, I shouldn't say it's no longer, I should just say. Something like uh, politics has taken a, a a step above faith, and I think there are a lot of people of faith, Christian faith, in the United States, putting their trust in politics I would more agree. than their the one that they have faith in, and that I bring that up because that impacts social issues 
when I, here's, here's, here's the way I kind of view the strangeness of uh, Christianity in the United States. You had slavery, right? And people will say, I've heard, I've heard one elected official, senator say, oh, it was a necessary evil. I'm like, that is insane. I don't know how you get elected when you say something like that a necessary evil. And they're like, well, we wouldn't have been able to survive. You know, we would have been broke. And then my answer to that is, you know, the, the, the colonies weren't supposed to defeat Britain, but they did. And when that happened, it's almost like fear and greed set in. And they said, now we're going to make our own set of slaves because we were slaves to Britain. Now we're going to make our own set of slaves. And that was a huge misstep because when they write the constitution it says it, it's all men are created equal liberty pursuit and the liberty what is it liberty justice and the pursuit of happiness and uh that's hard that's hard when you got a whole group of people that are left out and and that's that, that i find that interesting and i find it i find it i find it inspi inspiring actually that that the way you view your existence on this earth is to help improve the lives of others. And you really don't do that unless you love other people, <laughs> the ones you know, and the ones you don't know. Oh, and um, that, that is a, uh, that stands out about you. Clearly, Tim it stands out about you. Thank you. So when it comes to Christianity, and your experiences with people representing it. What are your thoughts and what do you believe and about it now? Ooh. I know we're getting into it, man. I know because yeah. I think I think that Christian people can help a lot. I do. I do. But it's it's like what you just said. Um, politics has a way of, of division, right? And so until we get politics out of religion, I don't think religion is going to be helpful towards any cause. Um, right now, you've got two camps and, and, and you got four or five camps in Canada, and you've got people going to the same church that are sitting in different camps. Yeah. And until that changes, you're not going to see much change. Um, you have to get back to the tenets of religion, right? The betterment of us all, right? And then, and until we do that, we're going to be stuck in the past. The same old, same old. That's how I feel about it, anyways. All right. You, uh, is there any? Is there any? Is there any bitterness left over from it? I mean, that's pretty hard. I mean, I can't imagine growing up like that. Bitterness. The bitterness is in the Catholic Church. Um, so my bitterness is so um, the Catholic Church on in there isn't a Catholic Church per se on Tidenaga. There's an All Saints Church and an Anglican Church. And the All Saints and the Anglican um, 
are a little bit different on, on how the Catholic Church handles residential schools. So the Catholic have refused to apologize. The Catholic have refused to repatriate it. The Catholics have refused any nuance to come to the table um, and sit down with their people. All the other religions have in one way, shape or form, apologized, have come to agreements with, uh, with the government and the people, right? But the Catholic Church refuses under all circumstances. I mean, finally today, I mean, we have 3,100 mur murdered children in, uh, in, in, in residential schools that were done at the hands of the church. And finally, the Pope's been talking about coming to Canada to apologize. Well, it's a little late for that now, right? So um, we should have had an apology, you know, 50 years ago, right? When, when everybody else was apologizing. And so I do, I do hold a lot of animosity towards the Catholic Church over that. And, and I don't want to, I don't want to but they need to do something to clean their hands of this. And, and if that's an apology and, and helping our people get, get back on track, then, then step up to the plate and start doing that. Um, you, are the, you, you have the largest land holdings in the world. You are the richest denomination in the world. And why are you stepping up to the plate to, to handle some of the damage you've done to our people? It's just mind boggling and, and frustrating for us here in, in uh, Canada. It is. No, I, I think you're definitely not alone, man. I think um, you're definitely not alone. I think that's... Uh... And, you know, that aside, um, even when we go after individual dioceses, they take all their money and send it back to the Vatican. And so that diocese doesn't have anything left in it. And so you so to sue that diocese, there's nothing in there. You might get $15,000, $20,000. And so all the money is going back to to the Vatican. And so enough of that, enough of that. Just you've done wrong, say that you've done wrong and move on like you expect us to do. Like we're only expecting to say, that's all we are, right? Like you're human, we're human. You've made a mistake, admit your mistakes and move on. And they won't do that. And it's frustrating. And um, we're talking about the whole gamut of abuses, right? We are, yeah, 150 years of it. I did not know that about the Catholic Church. They refuse to apologize for any of it, really. South America apologized on behalf of all Native people, but that's not good enough. You abuse Native people all around the world. You need to go each region and, 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 and give them an apology. That's how it works. You don't go to one region of the world, uh, wherever you are, and apologize for all the Native people. You wrong their people in every region, and you need to... You need to uh, um, uh, um, you know, to apologize for that. And uh, one unilateral, you know, hey, we're sorry, just doesn't do it. Uh, no. Is, is uh, it, would you, would you, when you, when you think about the Mohawk Nation and the Catholic Church, there's a pretty strong wedge there, right? Is it, there's others that have the same opinion? Oh, Definitely. And what about with the other denominations? Are they, is it because they've apologized, they recognize, they accept the apology? Um, so, yeah, culpability too, right? So, um, 
So obviously the Catholic Church was a little more ingrained in their their indoctrination of Native people. So they were very brutal to our people, right? And uh, so on the West Coast, it was really, really bad. On the East Coast, like I said, uh, uh, by the time, you know, the French and the English arrived here, there was too many Native people and very few of them. So their policies didn't go too well. Their Native uh, religious policies on, on First Nations didn't, didn't go anywhere, right? For two or 300 years. So the first church built here on time in Nagel was 1784. Okay. Uh, not a lot of people attended that church for, for, you know, 50 to 100 years. And that towards the uh, 1880s, 1890s, are, um, probably 20 to 30% of our reserve started to attend church. But for the most part, um, we were traditional people and most of us stayed home and and, 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 and did our traditional teachings from home. And so they had, a, even today, um, church on, on reserves is, is a very small portion, right? So it, you might have 10% of the people on this reserve go to church. And there's three or four churches on this reserve. So there might be 10 people at that church, 10 people at this five over here. Overwhelmingly, churches are dying on reserves, put it that way. Really? Okay. Yes, there. Yeah. So yeah. as people start to regain their culture and their histories, they start to um, follow that, right? So they start to get back into the old societies that they were once in. And and, um, and that's how it's working in Canada. So um, a lot of the people are traditional people now. So probably 50% of your youth are now traditional. Wow. So it's very quickly up here. So would you say that the, the, the dwindling numbers of Native Americans going to churches is a combination of the nations bolstering their, their, their education system and helping other people, and also, of course, collective experiences of abuse across generations for, you said, 150 years, right? Generational trauma, yes. And that's, you know, I can, I can't, I can't say, yeah, I'm surprised that church numbers are dwindling. I mean, it, it actually seems oh. to line up. It does. And it's unfortunate. It is unfortunate. And it is very unfortunate. So how do you, uh, how you, uh, how you, how does your, like your daily, your daily routine go? Like you say like on average day, like, do you, do you interact with many folks that are, that are, uh, Christian, I guess, I, or any other worldview? Really? I do. Um, and so we're a very busy company. So, um, we talk and have people from all over the world actually yeah. also, um, and so they come from all diverse backgrounds. So, you know, African, and so you've got New Zealand, you've got Australians, you've got, you know, people from all over the world come here. And so we had a UK delegation come here, um, members of parliament, uh, you know, so you had all, you know, so it, it, they're actually as intrigued with us as we are with them. And that's usually how it goes. Um, I'm always interested in, in people from other areas and other countries. Um, and so 
it, it comes up, right? And so it's just it's just discussed just like it is, you know, in every other way. Um, you know, people have the religion, and I'm okay with that, right? Yeah, that's, that. that's exactly what I'm getting at. Is that we can believe even 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 people who have been through abuses at a religion or religious facility from somebody from that church, whatever can still move forward and forgive basically. I mean, that, that's, that's essentially it. And you're demonstrating that because you're doing it with other people around the world in business. And that is impressive because I think a lot of people have run into abuse in and out of the church period. You know, it's not all the churches doing it. A lot of people are doing it outside the church too. And a lot of people don't recover. You know what I mean? A lot of people don't recover from that stuff. And that's horrible because a lot of people will never really know what they're in, haven't even recovered from. And they could be dealing with somebody who's, got a lot of deep trauma and not even know about it, but because they're expressing themselves in a certain way, they're almost dismissed. And so Tim, I really see, I when I'm like, wow, man, Tim is a huge success story, man. <laughs> I mean, to go through what you went through in the time of history in America and Canada that you went through it, that you went through it in. And I'm talking about like the you 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 when were, you said you had talked about the counterculture movement of the '60s and '70s, and now that's a significant because it's almost going through something again like that right now. So you, you're going through it. You're actually getting to see it twice, right? And and what's your what's your thoughts on? And I know you were you you were you were a young boy back then. So different. Um, so the last time it. It was different. Um, so you had groups of people um, rioting, protesting, and so you had a hippie movement, you had the Black Panthers, you had the American Indian movement, and basically that's all you had. Like today, it's so much different. You had the women's movement too in the, in the late 60s, early 70s. And so you had all these four huge movements at the same time juxtaposed today. You got everybody on the street. Yeah. And, and that's kind of what's different today is that there's no rhyme nor reason. Nobody's stepping forward. There's no Martin Luther King. You know, there's no one to step forward and grab a hold of the narrative. And so I think a lot of what you have today is being drowned out by too many voices. You need one central voice to step forward and start speaking to the mess that is today. And I, I hope and pray someone does come forward and grab that mic and start speaking to the people because no one's speaking to the people right now, right? You have Biden and Trump who were neither speaking to the people. And up here in Canada, you have a young prime minister named Trudeau. So these leaders aren't leaders. They are false prophets. Right? That's what you have today who are loading their pockets with money. And, and, and that has to change. Like, um, we don't have much time left. Right? So global warming is stealing our planet very quickly. 
right? And so I think what you're seeing is, is, the, is fast moves, right? By government heads to get their countries ahead before the next crash happens. And that, we all know that's not far off. And what happens after that, I don't know, right? Whoever makes a big play is going to have to live with that play. And uh, if it's the United States, if it's China, whoever it is, that could start a world war. And, and that's scaring the shit out of me. And uh, with a world war, a pandemic, global warming, this is not voting well for the world, I'm telling you. And we need to get on the same page. All these leaders need to get on the same page and speak the same language for the same purpose of saving the world. And we need to get all on that very soon you know it's interesting that you said that there the you said there is no martin luther king type character and you're right there are those characters those persons shouldn't say characters but those those positions that destiny brought into someone's life they're now like social media they're, they're celebrities now right you know what i mean you don't instead of instead of uh <clears throat> well, i think you have a lot of people doing it it's just that because there's a lot of people like you tim and you're doing it you know what i mean so that's why i don't want to say it's not happening because it's happening but you're right there is no when you think about it the voices that are connected to anything close to what martin luther king jr made his life's mission it's either tied yeah i i don't actually i don't want to be negative man i don't want to be negative, but i agree with you there i just i'll just leave it right there i agree with you that voice is missing from humanity right. those 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 elder statesmen and elder states women are missing in humanity and it's it's a different thing when being in the 21st century, you know, so I, I, you know, I saw you on LinkedIn, I'm on LinkedIn, you know, we do these things and I, and I shared a guy's post and I was like, you know, alcohol had a lot of negative stigma around it in the, when it was, when the prohibition of it ended and cannabis is going through the same thing right now, but it's in the 21st century. And I kind of just left it at that because, you know, you could, you could write all kinds of stuff about that. Right. I mean, the 21st century is wild. And that is that is it it's you have all these things coming together in this 21st century and the voices that are the most broadcast are celebrities whether it's entertainment i'll just put it across the board whether it's music arts athletics whatever entertainment and elected officials and uh I don't want to knock people that lead the church or that are on TV and, but a lot of them, I won't say a lot of them. I say too many of them, I think come across as, as hype men and hype women. And you really got me thinking when you said that, you're like, I don't see anybody like Martin Luther King Jr. Trying to, bring people together with the mission to love one another. It is, it is a, it is a different century 
And there's a, a book I read, a guy named, and I, I've, I've quoted this guy before too, because it's, it's, a, it's a tremendously strong statement he's making. He wrote a book called The Devil's Delusion, uh, Atheism's Scientific Pretensions, something like that. David Berlinski. And uh, he tallied, he, he, he took documented deaths and murders from the 20th century, from all the wars. And from the 20th century alone, there was more death than all the other centuries combined. Yet we keep saying, we as a human, we as, man, as humanity keep saying that we're getting better. And that is the odd part of it, is that it doesn't look like it's getting better. It looks like it's getting worse. Artificial technology is definitely creating convenience for making things move faster. But in terms of the content of what we're exposing children to, I think it's going in the opposite direction. So you, you, can, you, know, you can put fences up all over the place if you want to, but if the inside is rotting, what are you really protecting? And, uh, and with that, I don't know, let me ask you, what do you, you got any, any thoughts on that? I think you're spot on. I think you're spot on, right? So we need to clean up our own backyards, right? And before we can start walking around the world, pointing out their weaknesses, we need to get our own, we all need to get our own yards cleaned up, right? And uh, and start worrying about us instead of them, right? And, And that's the other thing you got going on. You've got a lot of world leaders pointing fingers all that other nations and and that has to stop. Right. So, you know, just, um, this COVID, this whole COVID thing is, is, um, is a lesson in, in greed, right? So you've got all the rich nations, you've got the G20, um, all on target to have all their people um, vaccinated by a certain schedule, but, um, all the poor nations are, you know, like nowhere near that. And so, um, you know, you've got, you know, you've got the leaders going, well, what about this nation? What about that nation? Well, what about your nation sending some vaccines down to those nations? And, and that's not what we're seeing. So we're, we're seeing uh, the G20, for instance, um, you know, have all their people fully vaccinated, have all the access to the, to the World Bank and the IMF. And all the poorer nations, um, you know, don't have that same um, safety net, right? And so what I'm afraid of is you're going to see a very recovery that is basically born in the rich nations and and your poorer nations are are never going to be able to get back uh, the GDP that they've lost in the last two years, right? And so are they going to be the whipping post for, uh, like they have been for the last 50 to 100 years, or are they going to continue to be the whipping post for the G20? And and, and, and I thought as, as, a, as, as a world that we're supposed to be growing as a world and, and not breaking it up into division in the countries into, you know, that doesn't bode well for anybody. Um, we need to act as a world. And, and unfortunately, we don't. We act as a world for the nations. And, and until we can act as a world tied together through nations that, you know what, this is not going to work, right? Like, 
you know, we have wars. I can't agree, we still have wars. Like, uh, you know, like, so the, the world's in meltdown. We're in, we have all these, these, um, uh, all these bad things that are happening to the world all at the same time. And now we're talking about having wars. Like, it's just, can't we all just get along? You know, can't we all just. <laughs> <laughs> well that's that's exactly you know what this is a perfect time for the next question and, I, and i'm going to ask you an extra question that i did not put on the email but it's not it, it, it's 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 finally in line with what we're talking about so no surprises but here's the next one you ready tim all right now this one i don't know how you're going to answer some people are like sometimes i'm kind of like i got an idea how they might answer but you threw me for a loop earlier so i'm not sure how you're going to answer this one so i'm very curious all right here it is the universe and all life in it is it the result of a series of accidents that have produced this world and this life and everything that's on it, universe included? Or is it so finely tuned that there must be an intelligent designer behind it? Ah, uh, so. Yeah. This is why I'm, I'm really curious what you're going to say about this now, Tim. And don't worry, I'm not judging, man. I really am genuinely so, curious. Um, it's pretty complex. So. Our belief is um, in a person called Sky Woman. Sky Wolf? Sky Woman. Sky Woman. Sky Woman. Okay. And Sky Woman falls to the earth, right? And so that's not a lot different than Christianity, right? So um, they're talking of another being who is outside and who falls to earth and there's a whole story built around that that, I, that, that was too long to, to get into, but um, it's the same premise, right? And so I have a hard time wrapping my head around even that, my own, my own history, my own culture. And so I've always been a man of science, right? So the world is a very complex um, set of biology, right? And so I would have to say, because I am a person of science that it evolved, I would have to say it evolved. And because there's too much history here, right? So we go... Um, just in Canada alone, our people have been here. You know, we the last date was fourteen thousand five hundred years ago. Um, so that supersedes a lot of, of Christianity, right? So, um, but I am an open person, right? So I do not, I do not. Um, if someone believes. You know, whatever they want to believe. Like, I'm the kind of time person I live and let live. So people can have their beliefs. Yeah. And like, I'm all good with that, right? It's, I have mine, you have yours, Kathy has hers, and, you know, and that's how the world is, right? And so... Yeah, yeah. You know what, Tim? I believe you, man. It's not an easy answer. It's, 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 it's not an easy answer for somebody to get to. And you know what? I, I, I think you answered it really honestly, man, because sometimes a lot of people, 
I think we think about it all the time. I say this every time. We think about it all the time. And we want to be right, right? And sometimes being right means we try to force it. And sometimes we don't. But I do think we always think about it because there is more to life than our cell phones. And you're right. You know what I mean? There's more to life than that. And I was really curious to see what your answer was going to be because you said you had a couple friends pass away or, or some loved ones pass away and you saw some anomalies and I've had, I've had a near death experience. And, uh, that's why I was curious to see what your answer was going to be. I, when you, you kind of made me think that you didn't at first, well, you but you're what? actually kind of thinking about it now that you, you, you witnessed something, you experienced something that, that made you, that, that did it shake you did it shake you a little bit i mean obviously must have shook you i mean I, I, you don't want to share anything i know you may not want to but your death experiences put it that way and uh, i'm sorry say it again i've had a few death experiences okay. a couple of times probably two or three times and uh each time I, I didn't see no bright light but my my life absolutely flashed before me um i saw myself in my mother's arms um i wasn't any more than a couple of months old so I had no idea of that picture in my brain. So how would I have that? How, how could that picture show up? So that was one of the anomalies I had. Um, how would I have any idea of what I looked like at two months old? And how would I have any idea what my mother looked? But that picture is still clear in my head um, from a near-death experience that happened nearly 50 years ago, right? So it, it, uh, it stuck in my head and it's been there ever since. So how would I know my mother and how would I know what I looked like? So that was pretty neat. But uh, yeah, so it's different. It is, man. It is. And, uh, you know, there's something, there's something, there's a scripture that I think a lot of people miss something from it. And it's when, it's when some religious leaders grab a woman caught in adultery they throw her in front of jesus and and they're like hey she just got caught in adultery moses says we're supposed to stone her what do you say jesus they're basically trying to say they're trying to trap him right they're trying to say stone her so we can say you don't love one another or you don't stone her and you're going to break the law of moses right so So Jesus bends down and, and it just says he wrote on the ground. And a lot of people think that he was writing in the dirt. But if I recall correctly, they were on the grounds of the temple in Jerusalem. And those grounds are not made of dirt. They're stone. They don't put just dirt. You know, everything in that temple was to a T, all the details. And I've heard some pastors and preachers say this. And this is where I think this is accurate. Jesus didn't bend down and doodle in the dirt because he was bored or just didn't know how to answer. The ground is made out of stone tablets, which are what the Ten Commandments were given on. And Jesus is writing, he's taking his finger and he's just writing on the ground. And what that signifies is the religious leaders are trying to say, how are you going to carry the law? How are you going to fulfill the law? And Jesus is saying, I'm the one that wrote it. And when he stands up, he says, which one of you, whoever, whoever one of you is without sin, throw the first stone. 
And the group that the people to leave first were the elders, not the young ones. That part, I think, misses a lot of things because as we grow and as we mature in this life, we become, I think, if we're honest with ourselves, we become more aware of all of our shortcomings, all the things that we failed at, that we thought we did right. And we realize that maybe I'm Miguel and not who I thought I was, like as good as I thought I was, right? And that is the interesting thing about this life and maturity. It's like, why, you know, it's like, why, why is it that they say you get wisdom as you grow older? And why is it that the elders left first? Because probably their sins were so piled up that the young ones, they didn't recognize it. They're just like, well, I'm doing this and it's okay. And the older ones were like, actually, no, it's not. I, I, I'm going to drop this rock and leave because I cannot say that I'm without sin. So that part, the part, that part is really interesting to me because I have young kids and, and over the last 11 years, we've moved five times and we've, over the, since we've had children, or such say, since I've been in the military, there's never been a time where we lived in an area where a relative was like just down the road or even 15, 20 minutes away, or even an hour away, or even two hours away. They've always been like four or five at least. And that was a choice I made. So I'm not complaining, but I'm saying now we have family here. And I talk with my father-in-law and I talk with my mother-in-law and I see them interact with the kids and, and I, we have conversations and, uh, and it is just really interesting to see how we mature in this life and how we all are connected. All right. And, and I, I keep thinking of the scripture where Jesus says he's praying to his father and he says, I pray that they may be one as we are one. And that is, that is powerful to me, man, because as, as we see, as we're observing people in this life, leaders in this life of elected, of whether it's government or business or whatever, they're going through the same thing too. You know, it's like, if somebody were to say, Hey, which one of you is without sin, throw the first stone. I'm not saying that there should be no justice. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that if we took an approach of loving one another first, I think we could choose to do some really amazing things as, as, as humans. And I think what you're doing is really cool, Tim. I, I would like to do something. I mean, there, I, I know there's, there, there's, there's a lot more story in you right now. <laughs> I know, I know we, we talked a little bit before we hit the record button and I was just like, Whoa, man, this oh, yeah. guy's been doing it. And he's been doing it with some really different yeah. aspects in this life that a lot of people don't even know about or cannot even imagine. I mean, to be, and when you think about it, it's like sovereign nation within a nation, that concept alone is quite strange and then you think okay well how is the the federal nation take care of the sovereign nation and you know there have been numerous stories about that here in the united states and and that perspective is really unique tim right. and i and i do wish you the absolute best 
me, you, me and my parent, me and my family be praying for you and your family, man, because that's what we're to do. That's what we're to do. Love one another. And vice versa. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Now there's one last question, man. And it's kind of tied to the last one. And it's another way for me to try to get somebody to try to maybe commit because there's a lot of people who aren't committed. And like I said, we're all trying to, we're, everybody's trying to go, you know what? So let me ask you this in the end of this life, do you think it's a free ride? Oh, actually, you know what? You did answer this a question. You did. You said you think the energy goes somewhere else, right? You think the energy that is in you. I goes, do. Okay. And you said where, where it goes, you don't know, you don't have any answers, but you, you do believe that something about your being right now is eternal and, and moves on. I do. Okay. All right. So let me, so with that, is this life a free ride? Meaning when we die, is there a price to pay? Oh, that's a question. Yes, I agree. I know. I tell you, man. I think there is. I think when we do leave this world, our conscience should be clear, right? And um, I think we should be doing everything we can do to right the wrongs that not only we have done, that others have done, right? No matter how complex they are, if they need to be tackled, we as, as conscious people need, need to do that, right? So um, we have to pick up where all these, these so-called new leaders are leaving us, right? And uh, it's going to be people like me and you that are picking up all the pieces uh, in the future. And so there is no free ride, no free ride. All right, man. All right. You know what, Tim? I want to come see you, man. I want to come get some medicinal cannabis. I got a marijuana card in Florida. They got to get this reciprocity. They can do it with guns. They certainly should be able to do it with marijuana. That makes no sense to me at all. I should be able to go to Canada, visit your Mohawk Territory medicinal cannabis dispensary, get what I want, and use it. it. And you know what? Because, you know my kids keep wanting to go back to Michigan, man. It's cold up there. It's real cold up there and it's real cloudy and gray. So I'm not really inclined to go up there this winter, but I want to, I want to come check this out. I've met Sherry Bennett. Sherry, yeah. Sherry's been amazing. She's a great, she's a great, great woman. So and, she, uh, Jerry, that, summer. That's what I was wondering. That's why I'm like, you know what? I, I, I got a, I, of course I have a, my, I have a family, so I got to talk to my family, but I am really wanting to go up there when it's warm, of course. Right. And it's <laughs> I'm in Florida now, man. I love it. <laughs> Everything's on me. What's that? Everything's on me when you come. Oh, thanks, Tim. Thank you. I do want to come check this out, man. I want to come check this out because I think you're doing a really cool thing. I think you're doing a really cool thing. Hey, Tim, I want to give you, I want to give you the last word, man. If there's anything you want to say to all the listeners, and then we'll close out, man. I just, yeah, I just like to tell everybody that, um, you know, uh, look us up. Um, we can be reached at legacy420.com. Um, see what we're all about and um, drop in and see us if you're ever in our country. Um, we are at 346 York Road in Tynanaga Territory, and we just love to serve uh, Americans. 
<laughs> Dave, I got a question for you. Is there is there like a, a checkpoint or something when you drive on to a, a reservation and a sovereign nation? There, there is, is or it is not? There's not. There's a checkpoint in some reserves. Very few, though. There's probably a handful of reserves in Ontario that have checkpoints. So they're, they're strategically located along borders. So in those towns, you might get uh, a checkpoint, but time in Aga is wide open. Okay. And the reason why I ask that is because I want to make sure that if, if some people go to your to your place or any other place that's selling cannabis on a, on a reservation, yeah, they don't have to feel threatened. No threats at all, no. Amen, man. Amen. Yes. Amen. Well, our special, my name is Miguel Torres. I'm your host. This is the Conversation Cannabis and Christianity podcast. Our special guest today was Tim Barnhart. And I'm just going to say it one more time. Tim is the owner of president and CEO of Legacy 420, an indigenous medical cannabis company located in Tyendinaga, Mohawk Territory, which is located about two and a half hours east of Toronto, Ontario, Canada. So Tim, thank you very much for your time, sir. I appreciate it. We will see you next time, everybody. Love you.